Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are a number of public lands around the city of Hamilton, Confederation Park, Barton Tiffany Lands, Pier 8, where a number of people have apparently set up some RVs or trailers or campers of some kind for, I guess, a winter shelter, which I think most people would say, yeah, that's better than a tent. It's warmer. It's going to keep you out of the elements. But what do we do with this? Is this something that we look at and we say, you know, this may be a solution. We set up a camperville in places where people aren't using that area right now at wintertime. Or do we say, no, the risk of an encampment fire, for example, like we saw at Woodlands Park, is too high and the city can't take that risk. What do we do with this? Well, Ward 5's Matt Francis uh, in his ward is Confederation Park. So this is happening where he is. Uh, he joins us now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no problem, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this is a complicated one because I think a lot of people are going to look at this and say this is seemingly a better alternative than people in tents. Well, you know what? I don't look at it as being complicated. I mean, you just said it's Confederation Park. So they're at a park. That's the last place we should be having tents. That's the last place we should be having uh, encampments of any kind, whether that's an RV, a trailer, a tent, um, parks are off limits. And if you remember back to August when I was deputy mayor, I brought a motion to council, which ended up making a lot of headlines, but to, you know, ban parks from allowing tents and encampments. So um, I think it's a, it's an inappropriate place to, uh, to have these. And, and, but I will say, I, I, I totally appreciate the, you know, it, it's, it's tough times right now. Uh, no, we don't want to see anybody uh, living rough, especially on a night like tonight or a day like today. It's nasty out there. I certainly want to, wouldn't want to be living like that today, but uh, it just can't be in our parks. So if it's not in the parks, th- there are some places, um, you know, Barton Tiffany Lands is an interesting one because it's not really a park. There are some places, some some areas that are city property that wouldn't qualify as a park. Would you be open, do you think that other councillors would be open to the idea of saying, you know, in the wintertime, sure, we can open those up and say, if you have a camper, go set it up there. And then in the spring, you got to get out. But for now, we would let you set up there. Is that something that would make sense? I'd certainly like to see the staff report on that one. I mean, we've we've seen this issue. It's been very uh, divisive and, and uh, not a lot of uh, unanimous consent on this topic. So uh, it would be interesting to see where that landed uh, and what solutions that people had. Um, but certainly, obviously, being in a, uh, a trailer, like, as such, is is certainly a better option than being in a, in a tent. But let's be realistic about this. Um, I mean, people shouldn't even have to be in this position. I mean, we, this, is a, this is a new thing for Canadians, coast to coast, that they're grappling with, uh, people living like this. So um, we don't want this situation at all. Uh, we, we, people should have the right to permanent housing and uh, safe housing. And this shouldn't be an option at all. Um, you know, we need help from our provincial government as well. They need to step up to the plate and, and uh, help us out a little bit here and uh, get some more affordable housing units for folks. How much, uh, and this is a stupid question, and I'm embarrassed I don't know the answer to this, but how much is Confederation Park used in the wintertime? Uh, yeah, people go down there all the time. Uh, I know there's, you know, it's a, it's a very busy park. Um People go down there to uh, use the beach trail and the park, the playground uh, on nice days. And, you know, I was down there recently, too, just checking out these trailers that are there. It's a busy spot. Um, 
so it's at the end of the day though it's a park and uh, there shouldn't be uh, nef- nefarious activities happening in, in our parks it should be left to uh you know, that that's it's just inappropriate to be doing that so you know i'll say that uh even though it's it is not as used in the winter time certainly it is still used and it is still a park at the end of the day I don't know if you know the answer to this. We just had that fire in the encampment at Woodlands Park, and thankfully nobody was injured in that. But is the city, if a city facility burns, or if or if someone is on city property and they are injured, if you if the city were to allow the RVs to stay on city property, is the city ultimately responsible if something were to go wrong and somebody were to be hurt, or is that on the people who have chosen to stay there? Yeah, that's a situation I just hope that doesn't happen. Uh, that's for sure. And I know by, you know, why I'm, I'm eager to try to uh, remove these uh, trailers from Confederation Park. Uh, you know, there was actually a compliance notice issued uh, yesterday and they're to be in compliance by this coming Sunday, January 14th. Um, the issue that I have with it is, is it growing exponentially. Right now, there's only four. Um, but if we don't take action and enforce the rules that we have available to us, uh, it's going to get out of control in a hurry. And then it will lead to situations like that, Scott, where, uh, people could get hurt. And that's the last thing we want to see for anybody or, 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 you know, a fire, what have you. We don't want to see that for anybody, no no residents, no people living in in encampments. That's, that's not appropriate at all. We don't want to see that. There is, uh, I believe there has been an issue though, that it's one thing, uh, not a popular thing in some corners, but there, there is an issue with, you can get rid of tents reasonably easily. I understand though, the city is having a challenge with some of these RVs or trailers because they're not exactly built to travel. Yeah, that's actually what I heard as well. Obviously with the Barton Tiffany lands, I went down you know, firsthand to Confederation Park to check out the four that are down there. And uh, those ones are uh, at Confederation Park are in good shape. There's there's no reason why they can't be towed away. We have a, a city contractor that will uh, relocate them. Um, so uh, if they're if they're deemed to be illegal and not move before the uh, before they're given time to do so. Uh, but yeah, that is definitely one of the challenges uh, that they're having with the other sites is that uh, some of them are in really bad condition. The ones at Confederation are not in bad condition. They're actually uh, decent trailers uh, for the most part, but the uh, the ones that are uh, at, at other locations are, are certainly, I've, I've, from what I've heard, I haven't seen those ones up close, they're out of my ward, so... Um, but I've heard that they're in rough shape for sure, which would, which would make it challenging to, uh, to tow them away for sure. As Ward 5 Councillor Matt Francis, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There has been an almost nonstop discussion of what's been going on in the Middle East since October the 6th. And... There, we, we know this, we know the discussion has been happening. We see it on the news. We hear it on the news. There have been protests. There have been rallies. There have been, there's all kinds of stuff. It is, it's unavoidable these days. You can't, even if you aren't on the street, even if you're not caught in one of these or affected by one of these, and we're not just talking about Hamilton or Toronto or Ontario around the world. Even if you're not caught in one of these, even if it's not affecting you directly, you are aware of what's going on. And I mention all that because Angus Reid came out with a poll a couple of weeks ago, and we're getting to it now because I think it's, I, I, frankly, because I didn't see it until now, but I think it's fascinating. 
and probably troubling to a lot of people. And among other things, there's a lot of things in the poll about whether anti-Semitism and, and anti and Islamophobia are problems. Most people agree that both are problems. There's a number of other things that we will find in this poll on a broad base. But one thing really stands out. The question was asked, in your view, would you say the overall presence of each of these in Canadian public life is benefiting or damaging Canada and Canadian society. They asked about a bunch of religions, compared it last year to this year. Is, is this particular religion benefiting or damaging Canada and Canadian society? Catholicism, 31% was damaging last year and 2022, 2023, same. Protestantism, 14% say it was damaging in 2022, 15%, basically the same, 2023. Judaism, Jewish people, 9% say it was damaging our society in 2022, 13%, a little jump in 2023. But Islam, 29% said it was damaging society in 2022. Now 43%, pushing almost half of Canadians are saying that Islam is damaging Canadian society. That, that, I'm sure, to a lot of people is problematic. Mohammed Fadl is a full professor of law at the University of Toronto, joins me now. Mohammed, thank you for doing this. Uh, you're very welcome. I, I would guess that, as I say, for many people, uh, a survey like this, a poll like this would be very concerning to see numbers like this appearing. Uh, yes, that that is certainly the case. But is it understandable? Could Would you have, it based on what we've been seeing since October and protests and stuff like that, would you have predicted that this is where the numbers might have gone? Um. You know, I, I don't really track these things, so I, I don't know. But I know for a long time there's been polling data which shows a very high degree of negative associations with Islam um, among the Canadian population. So it wouldn't be surprising if after October 7th it ticked up a little bit. But the background rate of hostility is already was already quite high. It, you know, and it's interesting to me because clearly the, the, the polling shows that there is a, as I said, a tick up of those who would look at, uh, people who are Jewish as not being, uh, or not benefiting society, but it's a big leap. And again, I wonder if when we see on the news and we, and we can't avoid it, it's not like we're, I don't think pushing it out there, these rallies and you know, the mayor's skate in Toronto that was affected and roads being blocked with Palestinian flags. Is that exacerbating this problem? Are a lot of people looking at that and putting the two together and saying, I don't like that? Well, I don't really know. Um, you know, uh, this might, might, not, might not be surprising to you, but as a professor, I don't really um, have an opportunity to um, sort of get the speak to sort of people on the street and get their opinions about things. I mean, I do think it's interesting that people assume that uh, people engaged in pro-Palestinian advocacy are Muslims. I think that in and of itself kind of tells you um, how Islamophobia, if I can introduce that term, is structured in a way that um, basically tries to otherize certain kinds of certain kinds of claims as of as just as a matter of fact um, at least 10 percent of palestinians are christians um, lots of people that are involved in palestine advocacy are not muslim are, are not muslims are not arabs 
but they do happen to be people from the global south because the issue of Palestine resonates deeply with people from the global south because of their experience of colonialism. Um, and so it's interesting that I think in the eyes of of a maybe not very well-educated majority with respect to the conflict, they just sort of associate everything with Islam, um, even though it really has nothing to do with religion. It's about a certain kind of political conflict that's taking place in historical Palestine. And where that gets very tricky is that Hamas would identify itself as an Islamic group and therefore it becomes conflated and whether Muslim people say I'm okay with Hamas, some would, or many would say no, but it, it, it's, it becomes difficult when the group that was behind the attack of October the 7th is, a, is attaching itself to that religion, does it not? Well, um, you know, the majority of Palestinians are Muslims and Hamas does call itself an Islamic or, uh, organization, but it also calls itself a Palestinian national organization. Right. It has very specific national aims for Palestinians, whether they are Muslims or Christians. Um, and that entails resistance to Israeli occupation. Um, and I, so I think that that's how most people in Palestine view Hamas and how most people in the global south view Hamas. They view it as a national movement not really a sort of religious movement. Let me ask you a tricky question. And I think it's tricky because back on 9-11, which was probably the last time we would have had a discussion like this where the numbers might have reflected this because of what happened, there were many, many, many Muslim leaders that I remember hearing coming out saying, the people who did that don't reflect us. They don't represent us. They are extremists. That's not us. That's not what mm -hmm. Islam, that's what Muslim is about. Right. Have Muslim leaders done a sufficient job now since October the 7th, drawing that same line and saying, look, that was a horrible thing that happened in Israel and that, that attack was a horrible thing. That's not us. Have, has they, have they done that well enough or should they have done something different? Well, I mean, again, this is part of, I think the deep division in society about what's going on now. For many people, I would say people who are not familiar with the history of the region, they sort of think that October 7th happened out of the blue. Um, for people who are deeply engaged in the region, um, they view October 7th as a consequence of a long history, sadly, of violence and atrocities. Um, and in the Muslim world generally, as I said, and in the global south generally, there is really, really deep and profound solidarity with the Palestinians, right? So most people, as far as I know, right, completely denounce the killing of non-combatants by Hamas, and that's viewed as totally unacceptable, right? But at the same time, they view the Palestinians as a colonized people, as a people who are victims of Israeli aggression and having the right to resist Israeli aggression. Uh, we only have a minute or so left. Is this something that you believe is, um, can be turned around in Canadian society? And I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Again, using yeah. the example of 9-11, I know there was a spike of this kind of right. sentiment. It went down, I am sure. I will, think will that happen if, again? 
I, I, I'll just say very briefly, we really need good government leadership on this, and it's absent. Um, Canada needs to stand out clearly for bringing an end to the violence. You know, already 30,000 Palestinians have been killed, um, and probably the amount of death is going to accelerate very rapidly due to untreated wounded, due to the spread of disease, due to starvation. Uh, we're looking at probably 100,000 dead in a few more months. Um, Justin Trudeau needs to exercise leadership. Christy Freeland needs to exercise leadership. Um, bringing an end to this fighting is the most important thing. Establishing peace is the most important thing. Canada can do can exercise leadership here. There's a real opportunity for Canada to do something positive on the world stage. Um, and if it does that, I think everything will go right in Canada. But because of the nature of our society, it's hard for us to avoid overseas strife. It's going to reflect in our own communities. That's why it's imperative for our government to take a leadership role in these in these matters. That is Mohammed Fadl. He is a full professor of law at the University of Toronto. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a bit of a, and probably not even a bit, I mean, it's more than that, uh, a depressing and troubling story. It appears that, well, not appears, it, restaurants all across this country are now facing a crisis, thousands of them. In fact, one in five, perhaps, because loans that were given out during the pandemic are now coming due. And, you know, restaurants in particular in the pandemic faced a tough time. You'll know that they came up with some new ideas for how to do things, curbside pickup and everything else. But restaurants, because you couldn't socialize, you couldn't be around other people, you couldn't often take your mask off in public, really hard to eat without a mask. Restaurants more than probably almost any other business, or at least as much as any other business, had a really, really hard time, lost tons of money. So when they took the loans, and my next guest I'm sure is going to talk about this, when they took the loans, that maybe helped them kind of barely just hang on. But it doesn't seem that it has made them all flush with cash because so many of them now are facing this crisis. Mark Von Shelvich is the Vice President of Western Canada of Restaurants Canada. Joins us now. Mark, how are you today? I'm well, Scott, and I can certainly identify with your workout uh, issues. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, if you do hear a whimper, that's what it is. It's not your answer. It's I've moved in the wrong direction. Um, this is a really difficult thing, I'm sure, because again, I think we all understand the impact that COVID had on restaurants. You just couldn't go to them. And many folded already in that time because they couldn't keep things going. Others clung on and used some of that money that were given to them, either CERB or other loan money. But even then, we've had people on this show talking about it since, that that may have just got them so they didn't fold. It didn't make them flush with cash. No, exactly. Uh, Scott, and, and that's the situation, and there's a cumulative impact from that. You know, a lot of people wanted to hang on, hang on, but we've also had these post-pandemic headwinds of inflation and labor shortages and now, uh, you know, higher uh, debt service costs with the higher interest rates, and, and we still don't have the same number of people coming through our restaurant doors as we did pre-pandemic. So to your earlier point, we are the second uh, 
uh, lowest as far as as far as recovery from the pandemic, other than arts and entertainment, and mm. and we're still more than ten percent below our sales levels of of uh, pre-pandemic levels. And throughout this time, not only just with the government loans, but with uh, their own uh, debt has increased substantially just to keep the lights on and to keep people employed. And and given you know right now we've got more than half the industry that's not making any money. It's just the wrong time to try and, and, and squeeze that little bit of extra out of, uh, you know, one in five of our restaurants who just aren't going to be able to pay that SIBA loan back. And, uh, you know, it would be a win-win situation. Uh, you know, we're not asking for a handout here. We were just asking for more time. And we even put some creative solutions to the government. And we're really, really disappointed with the sort of hard known that we've got on SIBA. And it's no question a big, big issue. I've heard from members recently uh, where their banks have turned them down for extra loans, and if they go to outside institutions, they want to charge as much as 30% interest rates on us. Uh, so uh, it, 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 it really is a tough situation for for the industry. And, you know, the result of this, Scott, is that, you know, we're going to have more restaurants closed in communities throughout Ontario and, and the country. Who are the outside inf- or institutions do go wanting 30%? Is it the mafia? I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like. At 30% interest to keep this going, it almost sounds like the mob, let alone a, an institution. It, it, it is, I mean, what is the, you talk about the creative solutions that you've put forward. Like what? What would be something that you have put forward to the government to say, we can work with you? Yeah, no, great question, Scott. So we put together what we thought was a very innovative formula that for every six months that you're late in replaying your SIBA loan, you lose 5% of the forgivable portion. So it still incentivizes restaurants to pay it as quickly as possible so they get most of that money, but it also gives those that aren't in the in the position to be able to repay those more time, recognizing that they're going to lose a bit of that forgivable portion. But And then, of course, if you go a year out, then you lose another 5%, and a year and a half, another 5%. After two years, if you haven't paid it back, then you lose the forgivable portion. But it gives more time for these people uh, to pay back these loans and gives them that extra runway to generate enough revenue to pay back these debts. And that way, you know, the taxpayers win because these loans are going to be repaid. And, of course, the industry wins with the additional flexibility that they really need right now just to to survive. Would two years be enough? And the reason I ask that way is because if you're a restaurant that's going to need those two years, does that suggest that you are not a restaurant making a lot of money so that in two years you're simply going to be in the same position? Well, certainly that that's always a possibility, even in the best of times, you know, where we're a very low margin uh, industry and uh, with very, very slim margins. Uh, but, you know, we have to hurt, uh, hope anyways that inflation's coming down and that members are coming or sorry, our, our guests are coming back into restaurants and they can get through it. And most of this is just a, co- a cumulative effect from the from the pandemic. And hopefully industry conditions improve so that they can increase their cash flow and therefore be in a better position to repay those loans. Uh, and, you know, we, even if they lose part of the forgivable nature of of, uh, of the loan, it's still a way better situation than having to go to try and refinance this with a bank, where some of them aren't even uh, credit worthy enough to get those loans from the bank. So, uh, so it's a tough situation for industry, but... Uh, you know, we've been resilient, and, and I think with just a little bit more time, we, we certainly could have uh, uh, prevented uh, some restaurants that are on the on the brink right now from shutting down. I have been surprised, and again, we've talked about this with people on this show before, and, and the one thing that surprised me, because I didn't know this about the business, when I go to a restaurant, when people listening go to a restaurant, 
the bill can sometimes be large, which I think has been a disincentive for some people to go because it's expensive to go out and eat now. I didn't realize until I talked to a few people in the business that that's not allowing them to make a whole lot of money. That is still a small margin. Well, exactly. So for example, and what, what illustrates your point is, I mean, our costs have gone up roughly 20% when you take labor cost increases, food cost increases, insurance, lease rates, et cetera. Our costs have actually in the last couple of years gone up uh, roughly 20%. Yet menu inflation has only gone up by 6% because we just can't afford to pass along all those costs that we're absorbing uh, to value conscious guests. Uh, yeah, you know, if you do that, you'll end up losing your guests and, you know, you can't price yourself out of the market. So it's a tough situation where you can't, you know, we're in an industry where you literally cannot pass along all your cost increases onto your customers. So uh, so it's, it's a bit of a different industry than some others out there where we're dealing with value conscious guests all the time and, and you still have to make sure that you're providing them value for the money. So how do you do that then? Because there is, there, there does become a line then that you can't go past or else you are losing money as opposed to making anything. Right. And the way that a lot of our members are, are, are dealing with that is they're making some significant changes to their menu items. They're using some more low, lower cost ingredients. You know, uh, there's been spikes, for example, whether it's beef or poultry, well, then maybe use something else. Or if you've got a shortage on a certain uh, vegetable. So you have to sort of manage your menu uh, so that you can still offer value to your guests. And that just may uh, re- result in you, you know, uh, trading out certain ingredients or trying a menu uh, that is a little bit more affordable for you as far as cost and also for your guests. I guess there's probably that means, and this is uh, maybe a silly question, but there may probably be then some envy towards those high, high, high-end restaurants that people will go to and pay whatever. It doesn't really matter. They can get away with that stuff, but I'm guessing that the average restaurant, that's that's not something, as you say, that people are willing to do to... You know, you, you go to a place that you've always gone to and your family has eaten for 50 bucks, suddenly it's 100. That's probably the last time they're going. Yes, yeah, Scott, and you raise it exactly. I mean, there are those high-end businesses that, you know, have a pretty um, a loop, you know, the uh, affordability is not really concerned for their for their guest set. But that the vast majority of restaurants are in that middle category where you have to offer that value uh, or you will lose your guests. And uh, uh, yes, I know a lot of restaurants may be envious of those sort of higher end steakhouses and things that, that you know, their their customers not going to blink an eye if their steak goes up by $10, 20 uh, But uh, for most restaurateurs, they just can't afford to do that to, or, you know, you're, you're going to lose your, your traffic. And I think another thing that people have to understand is just how the industry has changed since the pandemic as well. Before the pandemic, about uh, 10 to 12 percent of takeout sales for a full-service restaurant was the average. That's now gone up to 38 percent, and so that's a big change for the industry. And, of course, our industry doesn't make as much money on those takeout meals as they do for customers actually coming down and sitting to enjoy a good dining experience uh, in, in the restaurant. So so those are another, you know, that's just another challenge that we're having to deal with. And on top of that, you've got, you know, governments with more imposing more cost increases, and we're just saying do no further harm and let let our industry which is you know the fourth largest uh, employer in the country give us a little bit of a breather so we can recover properly uh in that way we're not going to be losing businesses and communities throughout uh, throughout the country and you know when we lose businesses employees lose their jobs and, that, and that's just a, a a bad spiral going in the wrong direction if we, if we let that happen so um you know uh, but once again we've got a resilient industry and and uh 
we just have to uh, work as best as we can with governments to, to make sure that we have some policies in place to help the industry thrive instead of uh, uh, what's been happening the last few years, which has just been very challenging. All right, let me ask you a question that I'm sure is going to be unpopular for you, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there any benefit to having a number of restaurants close because that would seemingly then weed out some of the weaker ones so the ones that are a little better established can be healthier down the road with the clientele who are still going to restaurants as opposed to spreading the business across all kinds of restaurants and everyone's a little weaker. Yeah, and what you're describing there, Scott, is is the regular way the industry operated over years. There's always been a churn in the industry. You know, it's a tough business to, to, to make a buck in for sure. And, uh, you know, you're going to have good operators and, and some that don't make it. What's different this time around is just how many restaurants, when you have half the industry not making any money, you're talking about good operators that uh, that know what they're doing, that are still having these challenges due to those economic headwinds that we've been facing on inflation and, and higher interest rates and, and debt and, and, uh, and, of course, the debt hangover that uh, many of our industry are there. If, they, if you start off with a clean slate right now, you'd, you'd, you're still going to have uh, some restaurants fail and some succeed. But the difference this time around is that huge pandemic period where almost the entire industry was not making any money and and got themselves into a lot of debt just to keep their doors open. Uh, we got to go, but did you just say half of the restaurants in this country are not making money? Correct. 51% to be uh, specific, 34% are losing money and another 17 are just breaking even. And that compares to 12% pre-pandemic. Wow. Uh, Mark Van Shelvitz, uh, Vice President, Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. Really appreciate you taking time to talk about this today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are in the off season. We are a month, give or take, from spring training. We are getting close. And there has been a ton of Blue Jay talk over the last number of weeks particularly a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, when we believed, stupidly as it turns out, that Shohei Otani was coming to Toronto, that whole plane thing and everything else. But in all that's gone on with the Blue Jays this winter and the whole story about Otani and the excitement and then what didn't happen, is there a more disappointing team? Has there been a more disappointing offseason than the Blue Jays have put together so far this year. Let me bring in Josh Goldberg. He's a baseball journalist for The Score. Joins us now. Josh, how are you today? I'm well. How are you doing, Scott? I am great, although I, I go to that question. I, I can't recall an off-season for the Toronto Blue Jays in all the years they've been around that has been more disappointing. And there have been some where there haven't been a ton of signings, but what made this so disappointing was they were so seemingly so in on Otani, so much excitement around that. And then when that balloon popped, there's been nothing. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I think that a lot of the disappointment stems from the fact that uh, the expectations are high and the pressure is even higher to win right now. Uh, in the past, if the Blue Jays didn't do much, it was, well, look at the division. This wasn't in an expanded playoff format. The Yankees and the Red Sox, you have no chance against them. But now they've made the playoffs a couple of straight years. They have only a few years left with uh, Guerrero and Bichette before they contest free agency. And yeah, you're right. It, it's been really underwhelming so far. They've made... Um, a couple of moves that are really in 
in tune with what they were about last year, defense and fundamentals, less on hitting and offense and power in uh, Kiner Falefa and bringing back Kevin Kiermeyer. And based on what you heard from Ross Atkins, I guess, last week, it doesn't seem all that likely that a major splash is going to happen. You never know. Things can happen. Uh, players can maybe look a little bit differently when their contract demands maybe aren't quite as high if the market dictates uh, that maybe they have to take a little bit less. But right now, it, it doesn't seem like there's a, a whole lot out there that is going to make a, a legitimately impactful difference to what the Blue Jays looked like in 2023. I'm probably being unfair because I'm sure that I'm wrong. But on appearances, it doesn't look like there was a plan B after Otani. It looked like we were going for Otani, and when that didn't happen, there was nothing that seemed... I mean, yeah, you talk about those two smallish signings that nobody's going to buy tickets or get too excited for those. There was no... It just sort of stopped, and that was it. Yeah, I, I think that... It really seems um, in a lot of ways that there were two pathways for the Blue Jays this year. And by all accounts, they were prepared to pay uh, as close to, if not what Otani received from the Dodgers. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, you had $700 million to, to pay that player. Why aren't you spending money hand over fist to make your team better, even though you weren't able to land him? I think that it was pretty clear that uh, that was a one-off situation. He well, he was a, a marketing thing as well. It wasn't just the yeah, player. He, exactly. I, I get that, I, and I don't believe that the Blue Jays should be held to that standard to say you were going to spend seven hundred, spend seven hundred. That was a Agreed. unique circumstance. But to spend nothing after mm -hmm. is weird. Yeah, I I think that a lot of the issue is I don't really think that there's a ton out there that is foundational changing. I, I don't think that. Like a lot of people have looked at Cody Bellinger. He won an MVP with the Dodgers, then was terrible and and hurt a, a lot over a couple of years, and then was really good for the Cubs last year as somebody that could come in. And I think if the price was right, I would be okay with it. But if you're talking about a two hundred plus million dollar mm. contract for a player with legitimate risk and downside, I don't think that I would sign off on that. I think that that's the type of contract that can really get you um, in, into trouble. And then beyond that, there's not really a lot out there. You could go back to Matt Chapman, I guess, because they don't really have much at third base, but how are you selling that to your fan base when ticket prices are going up to really, I guess, fund in a lot of ways, uh, the renovations that have happened over the last couple of winters. And right now, uh, Blue Jays fans, I wouldn't blame anyone who looks at the the product and let's say they sign Jock Peterson or they sign Reese Hoskins or something along those lines. Decent players who will add something to the equation in terms of improving the power production. But I like if you're talking about having to pay $80 for, for a decent seat next year, and you look at the state of affairs, I, I wouldn't blame anyone who says, you know, as much as I enjoy the Blue Jays, as much as I enjoy an evening down at the ballpark, I'm not prepared to spend that money on this particular product. And uh, they have a lot of work to do, I think, to earn back some of the goodwill that has been lost from a decent portion um, of this fan base. And I think realistically, there's not any one or two moves that are out there that I, I think are going to uh, placate a large portion of this fan base. Josh, I think the Blue Jays should probably play in Missouri next year because they are now the show me team. They're the show me state team. It's it's you're right. I maybe 
Maybe they come back in the spring and the offensive problems of last year have vanished. They've figured it out and maybe the pitching staff holds up and may, and there's a lot of maybe, but they're, those fans, I agree with you, are going to have to be convinced and shown that this is going to be the way. Cause right now it doesn't look like there's a whole lot different. No. And they've reached a point that I think for casual fans, the regular season isn't really going to do a whole heck of a lot. I think that the Blue Jays are probably looking at it and saying, oh, well, we just hope that casual fans show up because they enjoy going to a baseball game and the the outing more than what it means for the actual quality um, of the ball club. Because, yeah, it'd be great if they would win the division because that gets them past the wild card round, which they haven't been able to do on their own merit. Uh, they, as we know, have no playoff wins uh, with this group. And no matter what they do, they could win 95 games and and have a, a better performance in the regular season. But I think at this point, they're going to be judged on what they do or don't do in October. And the American League as a whole is not particularly good. Uh, there aren't a lot of teams that I look at as great. You know, the Yankees got better. You can say what you want about the Orioles. I think they're going to be good again. Never right off the race. Uh, but like the Astros are a little bit older. The Mariners, I think, got worse. The American League Central is terrible. So even if the Blue Jays don't do that much in terms of uh, legitimately improving the team from last year, I still think they're in a decent position to make the playoffs because the rest of the American League is, is so mediocre. But you should look at that as an opportunity to really separate yourself. If you want to be one of the better teams in, in, in the uh, weekend American League, there's an opportunity out there to do so. But I, like, I just don't really know beyond Otani. They really pushed all their chips in mm. on that one pathway that I, I think that whatever else is out there um, is really going to do it. I think a lot of the improvement is going to have to come from within. A lot of the players who underachieved and underperformed last year, I think for the Blue Jays to have the success that they want to have next year, I think it's incumbent on a number of players already here uh, to, to do that and to put their best foot forward after disappointing 2023s. I'm laughing because now you're channeling Ross Atkins with his, you know, yeah. internal improvement stuff, but that, that, and that, I'm not commenting on your comment there. I think what you're saying is legit, but you're not the general manager. I, when I heard him say a lot of this is now going to be internal improvements to me, that was the giantest cop out for a GM in the history of GMs. Cause I don't. I mean, here's the thing, Josh, even if they get better offensive production, and it's hard to imagine they could be worse, but even if they get better offensive production, they had almost a perfect year with their pitching staff. I know they had, uh, what's his face, um, uh, right off the bat, the opening day. uh, Manoa, yeah. Manoa. Manoa didn't go as planned, but they had almost no starting pitcher injuries. They had almost every guy regularly go out there and pitch really well. What are the chances that even if your offense is better, what are the chances you can replicate that season pitching-wise? I, I was actually thinking about this uh, too. So this is actually we're we're right in lockstep. I think you can never count year to year um, on on pitching holding up, especially bullpen arms. There's so much volatility when it comes to relief pitching, and the Blue Jays in the regular season at least had a pretty good bullpen. So I don't know how much you can necessarily bank on that. I think with the starting pitchers, it's less about performance and more about health. And you're talking about uh, some pitchers who are 
either in their late 20s or early 30s who have thrown a lot of innings in their careers and thrown a lot of innings over the last couple of seasons? Are you really going to be able to get 30 starts from at least four starting pitchers again? And I think conventional wisdom and just history when it comes to to pitching in Major League Baseball would indicate that that is not the case. And you look at the depth here. It was the same case last year. There isn't a there isn't a ton in terms of major league depth percolating at the surface. Like maybe it's Bowden Francis, Ricky Tiedemann, I think is going to need some seasoning after not really being healthy or being on the mound and, and producing much over the last couple of years. There's not a, a whole ton. So if there's an injury in April or May, uh, they're in some trouble, I think. And that's why I also do think that they could uh, be served with adding another depth rotation piece or or a swing man who can um, do a little bit of both. I don't know how high that is on the priority list, but uh, they're one bad break away from being in a precarious position. Mm. And if the offensive improvements don't happen from within and to compensate with that, or on top of that, you have uh, some regression, whether it's performance or, or health wise from the rotation, then it's you don't have to squint too hard to envision a scenario where the Blue Jays aren't a playoff team. Like I don't think that the margin is super uh, fine for them. Like I, I think that there is a very real scenario where uh, they're nip and tuck and, and maybe not a playoff team um, in 2024. A couple more things really quickly. One of them is, do you believe, and, and I'm not sure about this, uh, I, I do believe that Blue Jay fans don't necessarily like Ross Atkins. I don't believe he's a favorite. Now, you know, if he builds a winner, they'll be fine. I just don't believe Ross Atkins that too many Blue Jay fans talk glowingly about him. But do you think that affects people liking the team, attending games? Do you think who the GM is affects anything really? No, I, I really don't. Um, I think when when you really sift through it, I think I, I understand. I think it's more so for the the real passionate fans who follow the team on a day to day basis. I don't think that that's necessarily going to stop them from going to games or necessarily being interested in the team. I think they're more plugged into what the general manager is doing. And particularly, I think what the general manager is saying, it's not so much the moves or lack of moves. Sometimes Ross Atkins has made plenty of good moves. He's made plenty of bad moves like any executive would over a sustained period of time. It's more so just when he gets in front of a microphone, he leaves a lot to be desired. He's not a particularly um, impactful speaker, let's say. He doesn't you are exude generous. a ton of confidence. Uh, and there's a lot of just inane ramblings and, and you're left more confused uh, after the fact than you were heading into it. And I think that if he spoke less or somebody else did the speaking, uh, you probably wouldn't have as many people having issue with the performance that he has. But because I, I, I think if you judge him on the roster, I think it's more good than bad. It's not necessarily it's not been a smashing success. They haven't had the success in the playoffs, but they've been built back into a position where they're there. They just need to get over the hump. But you know, he's he's certainly made some decisions. I, I think that they probably could have been served with a, a managerial change, I think, with the way that that unfolded in the wild card game to, mm. to really run that that uh, brain trust back after 
though just it seemed like there wasn't a lot of cohesiveness cohesion i guess uh between the manager and the general manager there was a lot of finger pointing and they weren't on the same page uh, i wasn't impressed by that but at the at this point i think this is it for him this is his last year if they don't have success he's going to be gone and you know i think whoever comes in here is going to be in a really interesting spot whether you want to really retool rebuild the farm system maybe make some uncomfortable decisions some trades or really continue to try and push it forward and see if uh, you can sustain this window and, and maximize the opportunity to win with a lot of the core pieces that are already here. We got one minute left, and this is unfair to ask you to answer this in a minute, but every great drama requires a villain, every one of them. And I'm wondering if that makes the Dodgers and what they've done this offseason spending, I think their budget now is their salary budget is like $12 billion. Does that make them great for baseball or terrible for baseball, what they're doing? I don't, I don't think it makes them terrible. I, I wouldn't has I wouldn't I would hesitate to say great. I think it's always good to have a, a villain, a team that everyone gravitates toward hating, and the Dodgers will certainly be that with how much money they've spent. And I, I, they're way less than uh, an overwhelming favorite to win the World Series. The Diamondbacks made the World Series this year. Nobody was picking the Texas Rangers. The The postseason in, in Major League Baseball is a real crapshoot. So even if the Dodgers win 115 games, it wouldn't be the least bit surprising if they run into the Reds or something in the division yep. series and lose. So that's just the way it goes sometimes. And in, I would suggest, baseball. and Josh, I would suggest that there has probably, well, maybe there has, but I was going to say there has not been a team in Major League history that is as absolutely they have to get and win the World Series as the Dodgers. I mean, it, with the money that's being spent, it almost feels like anything less than a championship is a colossal failure. And that's unfair 100%. in baseball 100%. because baseball doesn't work like that. Yeah. But I think that any game they lose this year, if they don't go 162 and all, people are going to laugh at them. Yeah, I, I think that that's what comes with the territory when you assemble this sort of roster. Um, you know, the, the, it's October bus. Like I said, they could set the, the major league record for wins in a regular season. The Mariners have it. And I think it was 2001 and they lost before the world series. So nobody's going to really remember that if you don't have the ultimate, ultimate success when it matters mm. most. Uh, that is Josh Goldberg. Great having you on Josh. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.